Be seated. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings, and specifically today we're going to be taking a look at 1 Kings 21 and verses 41 through 53. Now, you may notice this brings us to the end of 1 Kings, the journey we began in July of 2022, will, God willing, unless I, uh, I'm struck down by the Lord suddenly, um, will end today. Uh, but I pray that, uh, that this time going through the Word of God has been useful to you. I think uh, Lord, uh, the Lord has made it clear that uh, there are so many different ways in which our situation parallels that of uh, Judah and the northern kingdom. We, too, are a people who have been given many blessings, put in a land flowing, if you will, uh, with milk and honey, given his covenantal promises, not as a nation, but as a people. And yet we have, in so many senses, like they did, turned our back upon him and have gone after balls and idols and our own devices. Uh, and the advice that was given to the people to turn once again in faith and to pursue the Lord their God uh, and to believe the promise of the Redeemer who would come is given to us as well. We know more, though. We know our Redeemer, don't we? We know his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have an even greater uh, calling to follow him with fervor and single-mindedness, not to be compromisers. Now, I must warn you that the applications for today's sermon uh, are going to be a little on the hard side, uh, but I hope nonetheless that you will be able to endure them and put them into effect in your own lives. Let's now go before the Lord who's given us this word and ask for his help. God, our Father, Lord, we know that your word is truth, and we pray, O oh Lord, that as we look at the truth, we would accept it as such, the very word of the Lord, absolutely infallible and inerrant and true in everything that it tells us. And as such, Lord, we pray that you would help us to put it into effect in our own lives. As we see the example of a man who turned against you entirely from the very beginning of his reign, wanted nothing to do with you and worshipped false gods. And we see the example also of a man who loved you, but nonetheless was full of compromise. We pray, Lord, that we would disavow both pathways, that it would be our desire instead to follow you with a single-mindedness and a love and a childlike simplicity, that we would put our trust in you and that you would help us, O oh Lord, to live for your glory here on earth. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to preach. I, I feel very weak, but I know, Lord, that you can make up for that. You can use even uh, the weak and contemptible vessels in the household to show your glory. And I pray this day that you would. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings chapter 22, and I'll be reading starting with verse 41. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, had become king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi, and he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Also, Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed, and how he made war, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the rest of the perverted persons who remained in the days of his father Asa, he banished from the land. There was no king in Edom, only a deputy of the king. 
Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never sailed, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Um, If there was any band in my seminary years, way back in the 20th century, in the 1990s, that everyone was supposed to be listening to, it was a band called Cademan's Call. I was told repeatedly by people who were just gushing with their praise. Uh, They're reformed. The lead singer uh, is PCA, and his name is Derek Webb, so he's probably like related to you, right, or something. So you've got to listen to him. So I got to admit, I tried. I really did. I felt that as a newly minted reformed evangelical, I really needed to to listen to and appreciate the song of my people. So I I went and I, I, I listened to it, but after a while... I just I came away thinking the songs of my people are really girly and a little too emo for me, and I, I just I couldn't I couldn't hack it, so I, I just never got into Cademan's Call. Well, then in the early 2000s, Derek Webb went solo, and once again the calls came. I have to listen to him. I was told by friends, oh no, he's really edgy, especially compared to Cademan's Call. He's using strong language in his music. I thought to myself, that makes it better? I mean, I've been listening to rock since the 1970s. Strong music, I mean, strong language is nothing, nothing to me, but, oh, I, I'll try it. But again, I, I just couldn't get into it. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced this phenomenon. You probably have at some point in your life. When you tell somebody, you know, somebody tells you they're really, they really love this singer. They love this band. They want you to listen to them. And so you listen to them. And you're like, eh, I don't know, I didn't really like it much. They won't take that. Why didn't you like it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to argue you into liking the music. And you're like, dude, it doesn't work that way. But okay, you know. So we would get into arguments about the music itself and so on. Uh, and I remember having several of those conversations on bulletin boards and email lists. This is uh, way back then when the internet was just getting on its feet. Uh, but one thing I kept mentioning as I was listening was, do you not hear the, the, the social justice and feminist themes coming out of his music? The, there's a heavy emphasis on the oppressor-oppressed dialectic I, I, I see in this. That doesn't usually go well. It sounds like he's making music for postmodern Christians, for, for progressive Christians, not for, not for evangelicals. And I was, I was absolutely excoriated for that when I, when I first started saying it. They said, well, that's you all over. You're just hyper-reactionary. You're, you're, you're uber-conservative. You, you just can't stand anything that's maybe a little, a little feeling, you know, that's got some emotion in it that, that cares. You just don't care. You're, you're a jerk. That's why you don't like him. But his fans, as time went on, became increasingly shocked and dismayed as he strayed further and further from orthodox 
Christianity, as he embraced leftism, as he cheated on his wife, Sandra McCracken, and he became essentially a spokesman for gay, gay Christianity. And then just recently, he showed up at the Dove Awards dressed in drag with uh, his friend who is a Christ Christian drag performer who calls himself Flamey Grant. This was his his statement to the world. This is what I believe in. This is what I support. And this apparently was supposed to be shocking, but I was not shocked because it was just the latest in a long line of compromises with the world that this man had entered into again and again when there was a decision to be made to follow the Lord or follow the world. He had chosen every single time, I'm going to follow the world. And it shouldn't surprise us, should it, when a long series of compromises results in real evil and real hurt to people. Now, one of the reasons that I bring this up is not just because the Dove Awards occurred a little while ago and to try to persuade you not to listen to CCM because it's garbage, but moving on, um, one of the reasons I bring this up is that the author of First and Second Kings probably the prophet Jeremiah, had a purpose well beyond simply recording the biographies of the kings of the northern and southern kingdoms, that is Israel and Judah. He wants to explain to a people who are looking about and saying, if we're God's people, why has everything gone wrong? Why are we on the cusp of being destroyed by the northern kingdom? Why has Israel been dissolved and sent off into, into exile? never to return. Why has all of this happened? And this is a record of the reasons why that he's compiling. It was a long list of disobediences outright in the case of the northern kingdom or compromise in the case of the southern kingdom. And way back in July of 2022, when we started this, I gave you uh, the following as some of the major themes or a kind of a synopsis of the two major themes that we find here. Uh, Kenneth Boa and, and Bruce Wilkinson said that the theme of 1 Kings is that the welfare of Israel and Judah depended upon the covenant faithfulness of the people and their king. That's it stated positively. If they had wanted to do well, all they needed to do was be faithful to their king. And their king, not, not in the sense of David or Solomon or Rehoboam or any of the long line of kings that are listed here, but their ultimate king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. If they had remained covenantally faithful, if they had believed the promise of a redeemer that was given by God, then they would have done well, but they did not. And Russell Dilday puts it even more generally when he's, when he's speaking of of what the message is here. The ultimate purpose, he says, of First and Second Kings is to show that disobeying God's law inevitably brings punishment. If we are faithful, if we walk in the, in the pathway of the faithful, if we take up our cross, this was a major emphasis in my preaching in Uganda, if we take up our cross and we follow Christ and we're willing even to, to suffer for his name's sake, ultimately we are told it will go well for us Although we may deal with affliction here on earth from time to time, ultimately we know where we're going, we know we're headed for heaven, and we know that ultimately this is the way, to use that stupid line from the Mandalorian. It's the only way. It's the way that results in the best of human flourishing, not just for time, but forever. And that if we go against God and we hate him and we shake our fist in his face, it will go very, very poorly. 
And the author has shown us that again and again as he's told us about the northern kings, Jeroboam, Nadab, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, Omri, Tibni, Ahab, and now Ahaziah. All of these, their lives were just this long, continual failure to believe God's promises, to do what he said, to keep his covenant, to worship him as he commanded. And now we've gotten to this point where Ahab is dead, and what happens is the writer returns once again to the story of Judah. Now you need to remember that 1 Kings and 2 Kings were not originally two books. They were split in half. It was originally one continuous book. And so having left off with Asa's death, that is the good king of Judah, he now tells us about Jehoshaphat. Asa, you remember, was a, was a good king. He was a, a faithful king, and he reigned for a long time. As a result, Asa's 40 years on the throne of Jerusalem were good years, but they came to an end. All flesh passes away. We need to remember that. But they came to an end with death from natural causes, and his son Jehoshaphat is crowned in his place. Now, it's interesting that he talks about, you know, the crowning and the, and the coming in of Jehoshaphat because we've already met Jehoshaphat because we met him as an ally of King Ahab, which is not someplace where we should be meeting a good king of Judah in the northern kingdom in a military alliance. Jehoshaphat had made peace with Ahab, and he had done so by a way that was very, very common in the ancient world, but nonetheless was also something that should never have happened. How did he make peace? He made peace by marrying his son Jehoram to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. And you can read about that particular marriage in Second in Chronicles 21. We don't have time uh, for it at this point. Now, the author, when recounting the reign of Jehoshaphat, wants us to know that it was mostly good. He wants us to know that Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings. So if we, if we divide the good kings and the bad kings in Judah, he comes on the good king side. But he doesn't sing his praises without any sour notes. He includes that nevertheless. Whenever you see a nevertheless, you should say in your mind mentally, uh-oh, something is bad here. There's going to, I'm going to be told something that offsets the information that I received before. So he tells us the good news about him, but then he lists the things that Jehoshaphat did wrong. Now, Jehoshaphat was a reformer. Jehoshaphat, for instance, got rid of the male shrine prostitutes. These are the perverted persons. They would have been the, uh, the, the shrine prostitutes who were at the, the altars of Baal and Asherah, men who had sex with men. He kicked them out of the country. We are not going to have that. These perverted persons will not stay in the country. But he did not get rid of the high places. This is one of the first of the compromises that Jehoshaphat entered into that we hear about. What was that all about? Well... You remember that when the people of God entered into the land, they were warned not to worship where the people of the land worship, not to worship as the Canaanites worship. And the Canaanites felt that in order to worship their gods, they had to get as close to them as possible. So they would set aside high places, preferably near sacred groves, and they, these were considered to be locations where the gods were particularly propitious to them. Unfortunately, in the book of Judges, we see the people of God actually worshiping those false gods instead of going to the tabernacle and worshiping the true God, the tent of meeting, 
At Shiloh, for instance, they went to the high places and they worshipped false gods and they made their children pass through the fires. They worshipped gods like Molech. That means to sacrifice, infant sacrifice in the hopes of having a good harvest, doing things like that. But even after they stopped worshipping those false gods on the high places, there was a tendency of the people of Israel to try to worship Yahweh, the true God, in the false places of worship. Now, the Lord had said, you will worship me in the place that I design, the place where I desire to meet with you. It's not you have to climb up to me. I'll come down to you. I will speak to you through my revelation. I'll speak to you through my prophets. And I will show you the way of salvation through the ceremonies that occur at the temple. All of them pointing forward, we know, to the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. You remember John pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the people not saying, That's a man, not a lamb, dummy. They understood what he was talking about because the Passover lamb was a symbol of the covering of their sins. By his blood, he atoned for their sins. By his righteousness, he establishes them before God. All of those ceremonial rites, all of that setting apart was supposed to emphasize the fact you are a holy people who will be redeemed to the Lord your God by his means and by his means alone. And so they were supposed to go to the temple and do that, not go up to the high places, but Many a time they would say, oh, the Jerusalem is so far away. It's hours or days away from here. Do you know um, Mount Gerizim community is just over here. Let's, let's go up to that instead. Let's worship there. It's so much more convenient. I know it's not the right way of worship. I wish I could say that this hasn't you know, been something that the people of God have done again and again. I can't tell you how many conversations that I've had with people where you're like, well, yeah, I know that church is, is very close to you, but uh, they're Arminian, or they're downright Pelagian, or it's just a rave with Christianity sprinkled over the top. Yeah, but they're right there. And my kids love it. Well, yeah, of course your kids love music and dancing. I mean, they're kids. But you're supposed to show them the better way. Yeah, well, we're not going that far. We're going to go here. So the people of God went to the high places and they worshiped God and they said to themselves, that's good enough. This is called compromise, brothers and sisters. And it's not something that the Lord blesses. So Jehoshaphat compromised in that he allowed the high places to continue. He did not want to offend the people. But then he went further. He made this peace with the king of Israel. Now, people seek after peace. It's one of the things that we want from our leaders. There have been, admittedly, there have been cultures that have craved war. The Vikings were always uncomfortable when they weren't at war, for instance. Japan was an entirely war-based society and culture and so on. But most people actually do not like the prospect of their houses being burned, their crops being pillaged, rape, murder, famine, etc., and all of the things that go with war. So instead, they asked for peace. Most often, that's what they wanted, peace with their neighbors, peace sometimes above all else. It was a thing ardently to be desired, but sometimes people desired it too much. This king, Jehoshaphat, made peace with Ahab and then peace with his son Ahaziah. And he entered into a military alliance with them and said, when you go to war against your enemies, who are ultimately our enemies as well, we'll be alongside you. That's why we see him fighting against the king of Syria. But there are certain kinds of peace 
that should not be entered into. I mean, an obvious example of a bad peace that should never have been entered into was the peace for our time brought home by Neville Chamberlain to Britain when he signed away Czechoslovakia to the Axis powers. He sent a people into years and years of misery for a false peace that wouldn't even last a year. That's a bad peace. This was a bad peace as well. He entered into an alliance with a nation that knew not God, a nation that defied God, a nation that did evil things. He also did so by entering into a trade alliance with the Northern Kingdom. Now, there's an understand, I mean, it's understandable why they entered into that trade alliance with the Northern Kingdom. They were directly above them. In order to get any trade coming down from the north, it had to go through Israel to them. Also, the northern kingdom had strong ties with the, the most trading of all the nations in their area, the Phoenicians of Tyre and Sidon. They even were married, intermarried with those kings. We remember that's where Jezebel came from. And so by establishing that trade alliance with the northern kingdom, Jehoshaphat was concerned and caring about the economy of the southern kingdom, Judah. He would engage in, in trade and they would bring back gold from Ophir. But the Lord, the Lord was not pleased with either of these things. We can try to be pragmatists and we can make these, enter into these alliances. We can make ourselves equally yoked with darkness, trying to bring light and darkness together, the people of the Lord and the people who hate the Lord. But the Lord is not pleased by this and it never works out well. Reading about the military alliance, we read in 2 Chronicles 19, 1. You may want to turn there. You'll find 2 Chronicles is just uh, two, well, one, two books ahead. 2 Chronicles and 19, 1. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. This is after the, the battle in which Ahab was ultimately slain. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. Nevertheless, good things are found in you in that you have removed the wooden images from the land and have prepared your heart to seek God. So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem and he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. Now we remember the Lord is bringing something to Jehoshaphat's attention that he should have known in the first place. One, you don't make alliances with evil kingdoms. And secondly, the Lord was using the enemies of Israel as a means of chastening them, a rod of punishment. And here, by allying himself with them, he was attempting to turn aside that punishment. This is evil. One of the things that, and this is, uh, this is a hard application, I've got to admit, one of the things Christians often will try to do is when somebody, by their evil deeds, has brought upon themselves evil consequences, particularly when we're related to them, we immediately seek to intervene to stop the chastening from happening. We try to turn it aside. Oh, I'll bail them out. I'll, I'll pay their fines. I'll, I'll do whatever I can to stop the punishment from falling upon them. What do they learn in this? Nothing of any, of any lasting consequence other than that you're gullible, that you'll bail them out of their situations again and again, and that they don't need to fear the punishment of the Lord or the consequences of their evil actions. Jehoshaphat is essentially being told that. There's no reason why you should enter into an alliance with an evil nation like the northern kingdom had become.
And then regarding the trade alliance, we read in 2 Chronicles 20, the next chapter, in verses 35 and 37, after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made the ships in Ezion-Geber. But Eliezer, the son of Dedova of Merishah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. Then the ships were wrecked so that they were not able to go to Tarshish. You entered into this trade alliance thinking that you would enhance the economy of your people. You took a pragmatic decision thinking it would redound to good. You made a trade alliance with an evil power, and it didn't. Because you did this, I'm going to make you worse off than you were before. Ahaziah, we see in 1 Kings, attempted to renew the deal to get gold from Ophir. Uh, He essentially says, okay, the first set of ships were wrecked, but let's try this again. Jehoshaphat, though, knows that the Lord is sovereign, and he knows because the prophet told him why those ships were wrecked, and he has the sense not to do it. Jehoshaphat, we read, would not. Now, that's very important. Brothers and sisters, when we make a terrible mistake, when we do enter into an alliance, when we enter into some sort of uh, treaty or whatever, whatever relationship with, with evil and bad things happen, don't do it again. It's a simple lesson, but again and again, I see people ignoring it. I can't tell you, uh, I can probably tell you, I can probably count it in my head. I have seen people make the mistake of marrying an unbeliever, understanding that the marriage that they entered into fell apart because they entered into a marriage with an unbeliever, and then going out and seeking another unbeliever afterwards. It makes no sense. The Lord showed you this is not the way. He showed you you need to be seeking after somebody who loves the Lord your God and who will love you because they love the Lord your God in a selfless kind of way, the way Christ loves the church. But you made the mistake twice. Why? Why would you do that? Well, because we are stubborn creatures, unfortunately. But Ahaziah, in the summary that uh, the author gives us here is uniformly he's condemned, and not because of military failures, not because of economic mismanagement, not because of political bumbling, but because he continued on in the sins of Jeroboam and his father. He worshipped Baal. His example is terrible. He was someone who uh, at uh, one time had ancestors who followed the Lord. He came from godly forebears, but he did not follow in the way of David, in the way of the tribes that, uh, that had been established as part of the United Kingdom. He had ancestors who no doubt followed the Lord, believed his promises, worshipped at his tabernacle and his temple, like the majority of Americans have ancestors who did that. And yet, like so many Americans, he turned away from the God of his fathers and worshiped strange gods. He was given over entirely to paganism, and he simply would not repent, would not return. And he brought not just disaster down upon his own head, reigning for only a couple of years, but he brought disaster down upon the heads of his people, Israel. Jehoshaphat knew better. He knew the Lord. He knew what he should be doing, and yet he compromised with an evil king. He marries his son off to an unbelieving daughter of Jezebel in order to have peace from war. 
in order to have military alliances, in order to have a better economy. And yet, all of his compromises ultimately work towards the destruction of Judah, not the building up of it. Jehoram's wife, his son's wife, Athaliah, had this awful influence upon him. She was, after all, Jezebel's daughter, and Jezebel's influence on Ahab was, was terrible as well. Jehoram ends up killing all of his brothers, and he walks in the way of Ahab, not David. And as a result, the kingdom under his rule will suffer calamity after calamity. And eventually, after his death, his wife, Athaliah, the worst grandmother in all of biblical history, will attempt to wipe out the line of David entirely. This is not a woman who baked cookies. This is a woman who <laughs> killed her grandkids. But who engineered all of that calamity that happened under Jehoram? The answer is his dad, Jehoshaphat, through his compromises. Have you ever considered that? How many of the mistakes that our children make are a result of watching us and actually computing the value that we put on things? If our children end up thinking that business and money is the most important thing that anybody can attain or power, isn't it probable that that's because that's what we showed them, even though we didn't think we were doing so? I'm sure Jehoshaphat did not think he was setting a bad example for his son, but he was. So I need to make some hard applications for us. The first is this. It's very simple. You can be a godly man or a godly woman yourself, but by making compromise after compromise with the world for the sake of peace, for the sake of prosperity, you can lead your children to think that those things that you compromised in order to achieve are the most important things of all. And they can, entire, you know, they can see God as simply uh, an impediment, something that holds you back from achieving the things that you wanted. If you live a life where you are saying, yes, yes, it's very important that we be in church on Sunday, that we worship the Lord our God, but it's also very important that we give ourselves entirely over to our work, entirely over to making sure that we have peaceful relationships with everybody around us, even if that means compromising on matters of truth. I know many godly pastors, for instance, who did not stand up during critical years in the PCA and say, what are we doing? Brothers, let us not do this evil. I know you, you think this compromise will bring about greater peace with the world, but no. And why didn't they do it? Because they did not want to fight against the brethren in the presbytery or the general assembly because peace is better than war. I understand that. I hated having to stand up and hear groans and eye rolls. Oh, him again. All right, let's hear it, gadfly. Troubler of Israel, what have you got to say? Don't do this. It's dumb. It's never worked in history. It won't work for us. God punishes denominations that do this. Oh, shut up. Sit down. Do you not see the consensus about you? All of these older wise men who know, who know better than you. Be gone from us. Turn aside. Heard that for years and years and years. Now, it did not trouble me that there were theological progressives and liberals in the denomination. What troubled me the most 
was the non-progressives and the non-liberals who stayed seated the whole time, who would not fight against evil, who were willing to make compromise. Oh, it's not a big deal. This is a tertiary issue. It's a third order issue. This isn't at the center of the onion. Brothers, as soon as you peel the onion, you begin peeling it, the tertiary issues begin to move closer and closer to the core. I, I spoke to men who were, if we're not you know, denying the Trinity, if we're not ordaining women to the office of pastor, if we're not doing the really big ticket things, then it's okay. But gradually we got to the point where the big ticket things were now the things that were being order, uh, argued about. We got to the point where we were arguing about justification by faith alone. And that happened because we compromised and compromised and compromised. And finally, I, and by God's grace, the congregation got tired of the long pattern of compromise and we left the PCA. My life is a lot better since then. I'm not arguing about big ticket items any longer. It doesn't mean that we have peace and stability and everything's wonderful and we sing Kumbaya at the General Synod. But it does mean that we are not constantly in danger of compromising on the most important things. Watch out for that in your own family. Watch out for it in your congregation, that tendency towards compromise. I have seen elders of the church not just compromise on doctrinal issues, but compromise on issues that you would not expect them to in their own homes. I have watched as elders of the church have gone along with the marriage of their children to unbelievers for the sake of peace in the family. They had actually compromised on that when they knew that what they were, they were essentially blessing was wicked and would create nothing but, but heartache in the life of their child. I have seen men give themselves entirely over to their business or their career, all the time saying that they are serving God in that particular area. Do you know sometimes some of the most under-pastored people in the entire church are the family of the elder or the pastor. He spends so little of his time with them. I have been guilty of that, God forgive me, in the past, not eldering my own family, not leading them as I should. I have seen families say that getting along with their relatives, getting along with their employer, getting along with the world is most important. And so they never tell them of their danger. They never set the gospel before them because they're afraid of the, the blowback that they'll receive. I'll miss my next promotion. I'll miss getting this opportunity to do this or that. I'll miss the next academic title that I've, I've wanted for so very long. They're willing to make that compromise. And it's not good. And the Lord doesn't like it. If we look at the, the list of churches in Revelation... The Lord's opprobrium, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, when he's speaking to these churches, falls most heavily, not on a church that's like Ahaziah, that's saying, we're going to worship Baal, we hate you, we don't have anything to do with your covenant. His opprobrium falls most heavily on the compromised church, on the lukewarm church, the church at Laodicea. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. Now, Laodicea was a very wealthy community. They had trade guilds. They produced eye salve and many things like that. But in order for the church to get along and to continue in business, they had to compromise. How did they compromise? By not pushing the gospel. By not drawing the lines. 
by saying, yeah, I think we can do it. I, well, you know, I know that the trade union meets at the Temple of Artemis on, on Tuesday, but I, in order to continue to do business, I'm going to have to go. So Jesus says to the, uh, this in Revelation 3 and verse 14, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Be willing to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Be willing to be humiliated. Be willing to lose the promotion. Be willing to have your salary cut. Be willing to undergo affliction for his sake. You remember our praying for the persecuted church and how Philip Bere was killed? Philip Bere did not need to be killed in one sense. I mean, I've been to Uganda twice now, spent a grand total of three weeks in the country, does not make me an, uh, an authority. But there is no organized Muslim jihad in, in Uganda. It's not like Nigeria in the northern areas. They're not seeking out Christian farmers and killing them. Why did the Muslims kill Philip Bure? Because he was converting Muslims to Christ. He was sharing the gospel. People were changing. The Holy Spirit was working in their lives. And they became infuriated. The devil hates to see his own being lost. And so they determined they would kill him. All he needed to do to stay alive was to do what every, most other Ugandans do. Farm every day, talk to your neighbor, work, sleep, eat, eventually die, natural causes. Hopefully they won't put your coffin on the back of a boda boda and you'll have, you know something of a, of a nice funeral and be remembered well. That's all he had to do in order to stay alive. But he didn't. Did he make a mistake? That's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> That's an actual question. Did he make a mistake? No. No, he did not. He did what he was supposed to be doing. He told people who were lost and dying and on the way to hell about the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He stepped way out of his comfort zone. He didn't make compromises for peace or prosperity. It cost him his life, but he was doing the right thing, brothers and sisters. Here's the hard application. We need to be like that. We need to be like that man willing to do that which is hard for Christ, to be hot in his service, to be willing to go the extra mile, to get out of our comfort zone. I don't like doing it either. It goes against my natural inclination. But brothers and sisters, it is so needful. We need to be willing to stand for Christ. We need to be people who are, yes, reformers in our own area, but who also are not willing to make allegiances with evil. Because we'll find that if we do, that the Derek Webb phenomena is not that uncommon. It really does happen more often than you would think. And the problem is compromisers encourage compromise.
I wish I could say that everybody who told me to listen to Derek Webb and so on, they, they, when he turned away from following the Lord, they said, oh, the, that guy's gone. I'm not going to follow him any longer. Many, many of them actually followed him into progressive Christianity. He wasn't the only source. There were other sources that were causing that to happen in their lives. But compromise begets compromise. And compromise begets evil, ultimately. Remember that. Stand fast for Christ. This is the most important thing to remember. The reason why all of the false worship that Ahaziah was promoting was bad and evil, and the compromises that Jehoshaphat was allowing in the worship of Israel, the reason they were bad and evil is because they took people away from following the promised Redeemer. They took people away from following the way of salvation that God was setting forth before the world. They took people away from trusting in that blessed moment when the angels would declare that Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, God our salvation, was born in Bethlehem and would take them away from trusting in his blood shed on Calvary and instead turn them towards superstition and ritual that can never save. Brothers and sisters, remember, that's what compromise does. It turns people away from Christ. Let's go before him now. God our Father, as we have gone through First Kings, it would be wrong for us not to, to stop and say we need to have this applied in our own lives. We see the evil that even the southern kingdom entered into. And we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of that, that godly men and women can make terrible mistakes. Help us, Lord, when we have sinned to repent of those sins and to seek to follow after you, to tell people about Christ. Help us to get out of our comfort zones. Help us to be willing to invite people to come and hear the word. Help us to, to open it up to them, to explain that evil never produces good. And Lord, when we make uh, sinful decisions that result in, in bad consequences, marrying unbelievers, for instance, let us not repeat the, the mistake, the sin, again and again. Oh Lord, help us to learn to have eyes open and to follow Christ, to take up our cross every day, die to self, and follow him knowing that he will lead us sure home to glory.